Hello, Freedom Pack family. So guys, today I am delighted to bring you episode 35 with Dr. Meg J, who is here to give a talk for all the 20-somethings out there. So before I begin the episode, I want to talk about productivity. So if you are like Lewis and I, you love being more productive. You love getting things done and you also love achieving your goals. A few months ago, I was getting tired of using plain journals to write my goals and my daily tasks down onto. I tried a few different planners and eventually I came across a productivity planner from a company called Intelligent Change. So when I opened the planner, I noticed straight away that it used techniques like prioritization, flow, the Pomodoro technique. It has motivational quotes on every page. It has tips from world-class performers like Tim Ferriss and so much more inside. When I first bought it, I paid like around £20 for the planner. So say the equivalent of around, say, $25. That's probably like the equivalent of, say, four cups of coffee from Starbucks, which people are buying every day. So the price is nothing really in compared to the return which you will see on the investment from this. I would be willing to stake my reputation on it that this is the best plan around. I have tried and I've tested many and this is the best planner. I give you my word. I wouldn't partner with any company that we didn't wholeheartedly believe in. In fact, if you can find me a planner which is more effective and more helpful than this, I will refund you the money that the planner from Intelligent Change would cost. If you guys want to check them out, there is a link below. I will be trying the five-minute journal which they have out next month. So if you do decide that you want to get one, then let me know and I would be delighted to hear from you. But anyway, back to today's episode. I am delighted to welcome to today's show, Dr. Meg J. Meg is a clinical psychologist as well as a professor at the University of Virginia. Meg's book, The Defining Decade, has sold more than 250,000 copies and has been published in a dozen countries around the world. Meg burst onto the global scene and gained global recognition when she released her TED Talk, Why 20 is not the new 30, which has been viewed more than 10 million times. Wow. Meg's work has also been featured in media outlets like the New York Times, NPR, Oprah Magazine, and the World Street Journal. If you're going to get anything out of this episode, please take this idea that your 20s are definitive years. So please, guys, don't waste them. So, without any further ado, Dr. Meg J, welcome to the Freedom Pact. One of the main ideas that I think that I got the impression that you wanted to dispel in your book, The Defining Decade, which I thought was fantastic, by the way, it was that 30 is the new 20. So what was it about that idea that sparked something in you that made you want to counter that that misconception? Well, it, you know, what it came from, what all my books come from, is listening to people. So I'm a clinical psychologist, and I have people in my office, mostly young adults, all day, every day, talking about their lives. And what I noticed was sort of that cultural idea that 30s new 20 um, was really sort of leading some people astray or leaving them um, unsure of if 30s a new 20 then what are my 20s for what am I supposed to be 
doing. Um, and on the one hand, you know, 30s, the new 20 makes some sense in that, sure, you know, developmentally speaking, we, quote, settle down, get our jobs together, maybe find our partners, get settled later than we used to. Um, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that what we're doing in our 20s doesn't matter. And that was really what I wanted to get out there. That in a lot of ways, 30s, not the new 20, that there's a lot of unique uh, developmental potential in your 20s you miss out on if you hear and believe that the years don't matter. Another thing that um, I loved about your work is that you take an opposing stance to this idea of people in their 20s autopiloting through life and justifying it with the idea that there's time to guide things out. Do you think that this has become a real problem? Um, you know, what I found, the reason I took that stance is because of what 20-somethings were telling me. It was It's almost like I'm not opposed to actual 20-somethings. <laughs> I actually <laughs> love them as a group and love working with them. It was more these messages that were saying you don't matter, this is trivial, your lives are trivial, your choices don't matter, none of this has consequence. And I didn't think, that wasn't what I was experiencing, is that people felt like those messages weren't helpful, they didn't like feeling trivialized, they didn't like feeling infantilized. And so I was really pushing back more against these messages we receive than what I felt was, you know, 20-something saying, hey, I'm really dying to be on autopilot, that that wasn't the sense I got. I felt like people were in my office saying, please help me figure out where to start or which direction to head because I'm not getting any help um, from that outside world that says, oh, it doesn't matter, you have all the time in the world, which is not a helpful message to people who are stressed about how to get going. For sure, for sure, you know, and that's definitely something which 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 you know lewis and me i mean we both experience this as as you know young 20 somethings ourselves you know and people just say oh it's fine it'll all work out and that kind of thing and is that what you mean of exactly yeah 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 that i felt like you know that the 20 somethings i was working with found that you know not helpful quite empty and also just really um trivializing and that I wanted to say you know don't let people play you small this time really matters your choices really matter and this is a time when you can do little things here or there that have a big impact down the line so don't let people tell you that what you're doing right now doesn't count mm, oh for sure you know and it's sort of becoming deterministic it's almost as if things are just going to magically fall into place is that what you experienced too? to this, you know, that doing things a little bit later, you know, when you're maybe more mature and have more life experience, like maybe finding a partner, you know, at 30 instead of 20, or, you know, taking some time to figure out your career, that doing things a bit later can lead to some better results. However, doing something later is it's automatically doing it better. It depends on what do you do with that time. So in your 20s, are you actively trying to figure out what kind of relationship works for me or are you just sort of hanging out thinking well if I start all this at 30 I'll be more mature and I'll make better decisions that doesn't automatically happen it depends on what you do with your 20s mm, for sure when I finished your book one of the side notes that I wrote like just a little sticky piece of paper it just had one word on it and that one word was responsibility so as in taking responsibility for your own life for your own path and this is yeah. the exact message that i've noticed that jordan peterson is pushing so right. relentlessly do you right. think that society now is set up in a way that sort of sort of hinders personal responsibility um that's a good question i mean more you know he certainly looks more broadly speaking so you know I mean, I think that's what his, you're right, that's what his whole book is about. For me, for this age group, I do feel like those messages of 30s, the new 20, doing everything later is going to somehow solve it, or, you know, that, that things are going to happen outside of myself. And what I find 
a big differentiator in people in my practice or in my classrooms of people who are happier and more successful. They take responsibility for their own future. They take responsibility for the kinds of relationships they're having rather than just, um, you know, kind of stumbling into things and then blaming other people. Why do you think that responsibility is more of a problem with this generation than, say, previous ones? person so I'm a 20 something person and everything I say in the defining decade applied to Gen Xers and I can tell you that because I was one (laughs) (laughs) um, and the same with millennials and then the generation that actually the very youngest 20 somethings are now whatever's next nobody's decided on what it is to call them but what you're really seeing isn't a millennial issue per se, it's it's a modern 20-something, it's the modern young adulthood, which things have shifted for, you know, in a lot of ways for the better. You know, 50 years ago, by 21, people were married and they had a kid and they had a mortgage and, you know, a job that maybe they didn't like, and that that's not necessarily the thing. Um, but now that those things happen later, there's a new period of time and people aren't sure what to do with it, and they aren't sure how to take responsibility for it. And so I think it's interesting because the defining decade was counter to everything that was being said at the time. And it's interesting that when the book came out, um, it, it sold better. It did better. It resonated more than all the books that were saying that, because that is not actually what 20 somethings want to hear. They don't want to hear it's all going to work out. Just be patient. You'll blossom because they, people, you know, maybe what Jordan Peterson is also saying is that deep down people want to be taken seriously. And I was saying, I'm taking you seriously. I'm taking these years seriously. And I know developmentally you can do some things in these years besides, you know, travel and, you know, have fun with your friends, which is also important. But there's things you can do in these years you'll never get to do again. So let's talk about it. Mm, For sure. And you've definitely, no question, started, you know, a real engaging conversations which people are definitely having you know i mean i mean i can't think of you know i I, you're the only person i can think of that has started that conversation i mean your tedx talk has had millions of views i I think i think it was like two or three million views uh actually it's over 10 oh wow (laughs) oh wow (laughs) (laughs) but last time i checked or last time i heard um yeah it was um and you know what it's interesting because i just said what you know just put on paper what I was hearing from my own clients that they didn't feel helped by these messages of 30s and new 20 they felt lost they felt frustrated um they weren't they were like well if 30s and new 20 what am I supposed to do now and um you know there was at the time when the book was you know sort of being shopped around or worked on there were people that said you know no 20 something would be caught dead reading this book and I said you know you'd be surprised because my 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 office is overflowing with people who are interested in having this conversation for sure you know and I think one of the reasons as well why why you know we're so delighted to have you on the show is because we we speak to people and um you know they're like oh we would like your show you know we like the law of attraction and things and we're like, you haven't, you you wouldn't like our show at all, you know. Like like with the type of people that that we hope would listen to our show, are the type of people that would go to a conference, you know, to to learn more about business or relationships or health, you know. They they they're not the people that that leave things, you know, to chance type thing, which which right. we thought was brilliant that you talked about and you opened the conversation for. Yeah, I just I felt like you know, even though it's scary to take responsibility for your life. And I think when you're, you're young, you think, you know, wouldn't it be nice if my parents could keep deciding things or school would keep scheduling things for me? Um, it's scary to take responsibility for your life. However, you know, my life gets to be up to me and, you know, I get to decide and I get to define, um, what's ahead and what kind of life that I lead. And, and those are, those are the sort of people I like to work with, but also, deep down I think most people are that person they're just for whatever reason afraid to take responsibility for what's ahead so what what do you think the reasons are for 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 people taking that um for taking that responsibility do you think it's an insecurity issue 
hesitate to do it. Mm. Are you asking why people hesitate? Yeah, yeah. Why, why yeah. are people, why are people, um, you know, sort of reluctant to take that responsibility? Do you think? Oh well, because then you know the choice is what you know you might succeed or you might fail, or the choice mm. you know might feel right or it might feel wrong, or you know that there's going to be consequences of your choices. Um, but I think what people are afraid of, and I hear this a lot from people who send me emails of, you know, am I doing the right thing? Is it, should I turn left or should I turn right? You wrote the defining decade, you must know. But I think when people take responsibility for their own lives, they realize I have to put the work in, but the results, you know, then the results are possible, um, but I also have to live with, you know, how it feels, whether I feel like I did the right thing or not. But again, there's no right thing. You just do the next thing. If something you do doesn't work out or it stops working out, you just do the next thing. Life is thousands of decisions. You've spoken previously about social comparisons and talked in terms of making upward social comparisons, which would be similar to myself and Joe comparing this podcast that we've been diligently working on to say someone like Tim Ferriss. Do you think that this is an adaptive or maladaptive trait? Um, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the, the way the brain uses it, it, it doesn't usually, <laughs> comparing doesn't usually go well, as my agent <laughs> told me once, which I'll never forget, is compare and despair. <laughs> and I say, I say that to my clients all the time, because usually we compare ourselves to people who have it better or we perceive who have it better, which is usually everybody <laughs> um, because we don't notice or pay attention to, or it doesn't feel good to sort of compare ourselves to people who aren't as well off. Cause that's kind of strange, right? Something that I will say about the defining decade is it was really one of the first books to talk about the downsides of social media. I mean, I wrote this book in 2012, it came out in 2012. I was writing it probably in, you know, 2010. So Facebook was just beginning to be a thing. Twitter was barely a thing. And what's interesting is that before any of the data could come out, I heard from day one people saying, I hate this. Um, I hate that every day, all day, every day, I go online and I compare myself to other people. It makes me feel awful. And so, you know, I wrote about that some in The Defining Decade, and that was really the beginning of that conversation, which now has been backed up, you know, with a lot of data. Not that social media is bad. It's not whether you use it, but it's how you use it. Um, but I think it's really difficult when you're a young adult and your life's not set. You don't know where you stand with people. You don't know where, where you stand professionally. You don't know where you stand socially. So you don't have a lot to hold on to. So you make all these outside comparisons trying to figure it out. But usually those end up making people feel bad. For sure. For sure. Um, is is it like an adaptive side to that though? Because I can think of times where, and I've definitely, you know, felt the bad side to it of, of personal comparisons. But sometimes I think, you know, when I'm looking at, say, someone, you can get a sort of like an inspiration kick from it. Or that's personally what I felt. Like fire under you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Sometimes I can see something and think, well, I want that or... Mm. I could do that. It, it, it tends to, for me, in, inside, it feels a little bit different than a comparison because, like you said, it feels more like an inspiration that it's um, that you see something and you notice they have something I don't, but then you immediately think, well, I could, I can bridge that. I'm going to head that way. And I, I do think that can be useful. And, again, it's with most things, and I talk about this in the book, with living together with social media with online dating it's not whether you do it it's it's how you do it and so of course we're going to compare ourselves to other people but being intentional about what's my mind doing with this and is this helpful or not helpful to me and maybe i should shift how i'm doing it yeah do you know it's it's interesting because um i sort of bridge quite a, a number of comparisons i mean between the work which uh be, between the work which you've done and I I actually found comparisons between that and the work which Brene Brown has done in um, Daring Greatly, where she talks about how it's sort of like a, a scarcity mindset 
and there's you know a culture which really finds it difficult to be vulnerable and do you think that that plays a factor in people struggling to take responsibility um you know i I think for young adults the 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 key factor that i see and that i'm actually working on another book about it's it's uncertainty and that's that's sort of the existential issue or question is that and sometimes that uncertainty is interpreted as scarcity of I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'll never be enough. But it's really just this, you know, you kind of grow up with a script. You know, everybody, you know, moves from one grade to the next at the same time. And, you know, maybe your parents, you know, schedule your soccer or whatever it is you have to do there. And you go to college, if you go to college, and you have classes and syllabi, and they tell you how to get A's and B's. And that's, I mean humans love that we need structure and then you would get out of high school or you get out of college and you get into your 20s and there's just nothing it's wide wide (laughs) open space and then when you make the big choices at whatever point that is so my life now is somewhat structured I have a partner I have children I have responsibilities you know I have a podcast to do this on my calendar that you know that I wake up and I know what I'm supposed to do but there's a big spot in there and I mean for some people we're talking about 10 or 15 years where they think there's nothing there I don't have I don't know where I'm supposed to be I don't know what I'm supposed to do there's nobody that I'm responsible to I mean and and that's you know the brain doesn't like that young people don't like that and so part of I think the appeal of taking responsibility and getting going is that it gives us a lot of structure and meaning and purpose and um, as great as freedom sounds it's it's great for a little while and then people go Ugh, you know I need something to wake up for in the morning yeah I get a similar thing where I read an article about this thing called post-university depression, especially in um, young, you know, young people when they come out of university and they're not yet in the working world and they are in that sort of purgatory of you know not having purpose, not having direction. What advice would you give in terms of you know being able to find out what your next step is, find out what the next move is, what your passions are, and you know what is the right thing to do? Because I think a lot of people struggle with uh, finding that out. Absolutely. Well, that's why, so in the defining decade, you know, there's an introduction, I think it's called real time, which is about what we've been talking about of, hey, your 20s are real time. It's not like pretend time. (laughs) And um, the the second chapter is called identity capital. And it's about how you get started. And it's the most relevant question to 20 somethings of like, forget the relationship until they can figure out how do I even get started? And so, um, you know, especially like you said, in the post university depression, which I love that. Um, so, you know, we used to have this model, Eric Erickson is the psychologist who kind of hatched this model of the identity crisis that people have this crisis, you know, sometime college years and they have like an epiphany of what they're going to do. And then they do it for the next 50 years. And it's just life doesn't go that way anymore. And so there's another model, an identity capital model, um, which is that you don't, you don't think up or discover who you are. You build who you are, one piece of identity capital at a time. And so I tell people, I mean, I actually work uh, very part-time over in student health at University of Virginia here because I love to work with college students and help them with this transition. And, you know, I tell them all the time, you don't have to know what you're going to do forever. Just start with one good thing. And just, just start with something that's worth your time and your effort. And if you're doing something you feel like is a placeholder or you're killing time, that's when you go, really, is this is this helpful to me? Um, but just start with one thing that seems like this could add value to who I am, and you do that. And maybe you do it for a year, maybe you do it for three years, and then that's a piece of identity capital. And then you go from that piece to the next piece. And then by the time you're you know, further along in your 20s, usually you have several pieces of identity capital and your sort of professional self starts to take shape. But kind of trying to figure it out beforehand, I mean, for most people, well, for a lot of people, isn't going to work. You've got the people who say, oh, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. But, you know, for many people, that's not true. Yeah. 
for sure. Something I'd also really like to to find out from you is is the link between responsibility and happiness. Because I've always, I, I've spoken to people that seem reluctant to take on a lot. And one of the reasons is is that I think that they, they have, have stated things like, like, you know, the less time I have, the less happier I'd be. But in my own life, I've personally found that the more responsibility I have, the more meaning that is in my life and the more happier that I am as a person. I wonder what you think about that. Oh, I, I could not agree more. Um, that... I see it every day that some of the most unhappy 20-somethings or college students that I work with or have worked with are the ones that are just abdicating responsibility. And it's because, like you said, they don't have any particular time to get up in the morning. They don't have a reason. I actually worked with a guy recently who was a graduate student, and it wasn't going well, partly because he just was really uh, hesitating taking ownership of his own life and so I said I think you should leave until you're ready to do that why are you wasting your time and your money in graduate school if you're not owning it just I think you need to go stand on your own two feet and come back when you're ready to own this and um so he was leaving graduate school and (laughs) we had a session and he was going to leave town and he, he literally said since I don't have any more responsibilities to neglect I don't see why I should be in this town anymore and it was just so interesting that the way he framed what he'd been doing you know his his kind of project the last two or three years had been neglecting his responsibilities like that was like a to-do and so I you know come back when your, your, your to-do item isn't to neglect your responsibilities it's to own things you want to do with your time you know you only have one life that we know of so, um, but people tend to be much happier when they feel like they're making progress and they have things to be proud of and they have attachments, people who care about them and that they feel responsible for. We asked our listeners to send in some questions and the one that gripped us the most, I'll read out now. And, and the question was this, if I'm look, um, if I'm looking to be responsible and forward planning, but I also want to take an unconventional career that requires me to make my own income. How can I marry these two ideas? Oh, well, you have to marry those two ideas because if you want to have an unconventional career and make your own income, and so I take it you mean being self-employed, you have to plan it, right? I mean, I'm I'm basically self-employed and that my life is, my career is, a you know, mishmash of various pieces of identity capital i write books i give talks i teach at a university i work some in, you know student health i have private practice clients and so there's no big boss out there that tells me when to schedule stuff or what my budget's going to be or how much money i need to make to pay my bills or you know take care of my kids that all has to come from me and so i say that to this listener um that if you want to forge your own path and or if you read the book build your own customized bike it has to come from you where else is it going to come especially if you want to chart your own course you have to do the forward planning because there's no big boss man out there to do it for you for sure for sure and, it, and it's great that we've got on to this topic about income and money because i know that speaking from personal experience within a lot of uh, people that I was in university with and a lot of people that I become friends with, I noticed that there's sort of a, like a lazy type attitude towards financial planning with people within their late teens and early 20s. Do you think that there needs to be more of an emphasis on financial planning for younger generations? I mean, I think there needs to be more of an emphasis on financial empowerment. And, um, you know, it's... the. There's a, a monetary equivalent of, which I talk about a bit in the defining decade, but I'm not a finance person, but, you know, saving a little bit in your 20s, I wish I could remember the numbers that's in there, but something like saving, you know, $150 a month and you're starting in your 20s down the line is the equivalent of, well, if I wait till I'm 40 and start, I have to save $1,000 a month. And so... I think there needs to be more financial 
literacy and education and, and empowerment that, hey, if you could do a little bit when you're younger, it's really going to pay off and it'll be less painful for you over the long run. I mean, I absolutely remember being in my 20s and thinking, are you kidding me? I don't have an extra $150 a month. So I, I understand that that may sound nice, but a lot of people don't have it. Um, but some people do or they have something. And I think and young people don't know that they can do a little bit that will help them out a lot, not just when they're 60 or 80, because, of course, when you're 20, you think I'll never be that old. But, um, you know, when you're 40 and you'd rather not set aside $1,000 a month toward retirement because you already, you know, got it going. So I wish uh, more high schools, more colleges, while we have captive audiences, I say forget about four majors and three minors and all this ridiculousness that nobody cares about when you get in the job world. Take a personal finance class. Take a positive psychology class. You know, take responsibility for your own finances, your own happiness. And um, I wish that there was more of a like a, a marriage there with education in terms of what really helps people. And I know a lot of people um, who are the extreme example of this. They they came out of school and they took responsibility for themselves and. They all dived into full-time work and, and saving for, for house deposits and would never go out and their sole focus would be on their future. And, you know, that is great in terms of certainty. But I wondered if you think that there should be a balance between that sort of responsibility and a sense of hedonism or spontaneity or just enjoying life at the same time. Is there a perfect balance or is it case by case? do know that the happiest most successful people so I'm actually really interested in time and so to me the defining decade is a book about time um, because it's about hey there's this period of time and we've been told this and the brain thinks that but what's the reality developmentally you know what is what is this time really about um, so anyhow when it comes to thinking about time we know that the happiest most successful people spend about half their time thinking about planning, you know, imagining, dreaming about the future and about half their time, you know, in the, in the now investing in what makes me happy and successful and, you know, feeling good now. Absolutely think people need to roughly balance investing in the present and investing in the future. Um, and I absolutely, I had a client in my office the other day who had been just working, 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 working for this goal that's 10 years off. I said, you're never going to get there. You're going, you're going to have a breakdown. Um, you've got to take a break. You have to have friends. You have to have something in the present or your future will, you'll never make it. So, um, but you know, with, with the defining decade, I was countering the prevailing message was present, 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 present. And so I was saying, hey, what about the other half of that equation? For sure. You know, I mean, and you'll know all yourself about your studies into happiness where things like community and uh, meaningful work are so important in terms of happiness. But but these things, they go hand in hand with responsibility as well. I mean, as you said, responsibility doesn't make you less happy. It makes you more happy. with what we hear, you know, that I would be happy if I could just travel all the time or not have any attachments or not have any responsibilities. And we actually know that isn't what makes people happy, that people in their 20s tend to feel more happy, more confident, less anxious, less depressed when they feel like they're making some progress um, with their professional identity, with their personal identity, with their relationships that people feel better, not worse. And that's just the truth. Yeah. And another example, which, which, which I could give this is I know countless examples of people near me that retired at quite a young age. And then they've gone back to work because sitting at home and doing the gardening just didn't give them any meaning. (laughs) Well, I think that's, I mean, that's, yeah, so that's a really cool conversation because you're, you're hearing that now of people saying, I don't want to, 
don't want to sit around and play golf, you know, when I'm 65 or when I'm 75. And I think there's a, you know, maybe golf never sounds good to a 20-something, I don't know, but I think there's an equivalent there, like the 20-something version of that, of like sleep till 12 or go to brunch or, you know, just go to music festivals, which, hey, I did all that, and it is really fun. But the idea that that's all you do for a 10 or 15 period, you know, stretch of time, it's not fun. Um, not just that. And so I think people are sort of realizing that whether you're 20 or whether you're 70, what makes people happier is engaging with, you know, meaning, purpose, work, friends, family, nature, whatever it is, but it's engagement and it's responsibility. And, um, I have no plans to shut my doors and, um, you know, quit working when I'm, 65. I hope I'm still writing books and talking to people and listening to people because it makes life so much more fun. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is important to connect with that that purpose and and passion. But one of the things that quite scares me, actually, is the amount of young people that we've spoken to um, through messages who've come to us for advice. And I ask them what their purpose or what their passion is in life. And they say that they can't seem to figure it out. Um, which I which I found a bit scary, and, and what I wanted to ask was, would you have any advice on you know how to even acknowledge what your purpose is, what your passion is? How do people find out what will truly give them meaning? You know, it's uh, I think trying to find your purpose or passion is like trying to fall in love or go to sleep. You know that you can't. That sometimes you just have to. Um, I don't mean let it go and not do anything. I mean, not focus too hard on a, you know, particular outcome. There's a great, I wish I could remember it. Um, There was a Mark Zuckerberg quote, and I read it once, didn't write it down, so this is probably only 20% correct. (laughs) But it was something like, you know, that people confuse passion with not needing to work hard. And so there's sort of this idea that, well, if I knew what my passion was, that like, you know, everything would just happen and I would be happy and you know that but you know most people work hard so you know I feel about passion the way I feel about love is that just start engaging with relationships with work with people with the world and something will develop that's healthy for you that gives you meaning that feels good to you and you know if if we're lucky that ends up feeling like a passion but maybe passion is a word that is you know more confusing than it is helpful because I think people imagine they're going to be struck by lightning and then life is just gonna work out it's a little bit like that identity crisis model of once I have this epiphany then I can move forward when it's actually the opposite just start engaging and see what you learn yeah I think I also love the quote from um, Seth Godin where he says you know, picking work that you love is, is easy. Being able to choose a career that you can decide to love. Now, that's the real challenge, and that's what will give you meaning. And and, and I absolutely loved that when I first heard it. Will you say that one again? I didn't hear the second part. So picking work you love is easy. What was the yeah. second part? He said, uh, finding work which gives you meaning and then deciding to love that, that is what will make your life special. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I and I think you only find that through experience. You don't find that through sitting in your room and thinking about it. Frankly, you don't find it through sitting in an office with a therapist like myself. Um, you find that through getting out there. And as a therapist, I'm, I'm a pusher, not a puller. And so some therapists imagine their job is to get like really close to their clients and develop this really intense connection and have this really important relationship. And I mean, that's all good. But if I'm the most important person in my client's life, I'm not doing my my job and to me my job is to push 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 say who who else is in your life what else are you doing what's happening with work how are you feeling about you know the future or you know what you feel connected to that you just have to get out there and have those experiences and let it build yeah yeah for sure you know i i i i definitely agree with that i i know um I, I was looking through some articles and, and um, 
I think that I found, I didn't look into it in too much depth, but I think that I found some of you, that you had some pretty good tips in terms of setting goals. So I, I think that one of them I read was sort of like a one year type goal. What would you say to say someone that is, that comes to you and they sort of, they're looking to get started. What would, what would you say in terms of goal setting? And I'm actually, I'm teaching a class uh, using the defining decade next year. And the final project is make a timeline for uh, the next year, the next five years, the next 10 years. And the point of that is not to have people write contracts that then they feel that they can't pivot from or that they failed if they don't meet them. But again, I'm interested in time. And so it's to help people engage with time. As one of my clients said of, you know, once you write everything down or put it on the calendar, the future is a lot closer than you think it is. And so I think that, you know, not to take it as a contract as much as to take it as, you know, brainstorming or engaging with time of where might I like to be in a a year from now where might I like to be three years from now for a lot of young people thinking five years from now you might as well be talking about you know the 22nd century but you know sometimes thinking one year from now three years from now and again it's just to get you going with oh well shoot if I wanted if I'm thinking about maybe I want to be Uh, in this other city two years from now, how am I going to get there? Or if I'm thinking about, I want to go to business school, what do I need to do between now and then that suddenly you realize there's a lot more on the calendar than you think there is. Yeah, for sure. And I think as well that, that, you know, that uh, the, the book uh, psycho cybernetics that really taught me a lot where even people that, that would say that they don't have any goals they still have goals, but they're just not positive ones. <laughs> so, so. Well, that, I'm interested in that. So, what do they? What do they mean? I, I'm thinking of the client I told you where his goal was to neglect his responsibilities yeah. that day. Is that what they mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it basically says that that the human brain is always looking, essentially, for 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 you know to it's always creating goals, and and if it, and if you don't specifically create positive ones then it's always moving from, it'll, it'll just find its own way to do things. So it'll end up creating negative goals. So it could be like binge watching Netflix or shoveling right, right, Cheetos right. into your mouth or things like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They're sort of, or, you know, give my parents the finger. You know, it's kind yeah. of like, this is how I sort of, you know, I'm always doing something. I actually really love that. And because mm. it's true, people are always doing something something it's just a quick question of what that is and whether you'll be happy with that you know a year or two or three years from now yeah and the other thing as well which 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 it talks about in the book is where it says that you know like creating your own goals and and uh doing the work it may be difficult but it also takes a lot of work to not do the things because you're probably going to be disappointing people you're going to have to make up excuses for all time so that takes a lot of work too (laughs) That was really the person I start with in, in the defining decade. I don't remember the name I gave her. Kate, maybe, because it's, it's a pseudonym, so I can't remember. But um, that she was one of those that was like, I don't want commitments. I don't want, you know, I don't want responsibilities. I don't want to, you know, kind of grow up yet. So she had like two cruddy jobs because she, you know, still lived on earth and had to pay rent of some kind and, um, you know, was constantly fighting with her parents and, uh, you know, had these crazy hours and so could never see her friends. And, and so she was still doing things and mm. it just, they just weren't things that were actually making her happy. So very few people can truly do nothing. And as far as setting goals or, you know, teaching people to set goals, is there any science or, or methodology in it? Because I, in the UK at least, they, when we were in school, they used to teach us SMART goals, which stood for um, specific, uh, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-orientated. I think that that's the one that we're, we tend to be taught in terms of mythology. Yeah, I think that's a great one. I, I think that's a great mythology, and I wouldn't reinvent the wheel on that. I, um, so I think if... I that's a that's a goal you're thinking of if that's a one-year goal like whatever it is I want to get myself to this town or get myself to this school or I want to get a job in this company then below that you can think of and maybe these are the the actionables but you know what are the deliverables what are the micro goals 
that get me from here to there. And that's usually where the calendar fills up, like in, in the defining decade with the client who said, well, sure, I want to be in law school in three years, but that's three years from now. And then I was like, okay, well, what else you got to do to get there? We talked about law school. We talked about blah, 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 internship, get the letters of recommendation. And then suddenly she was a lot busier than she realized. And so to think about the SMART goals and to think about the micro goals that are required along the, along the way. Plus, the great thing about micro goals is that you can actually accomplish them <laughs> in, in, you know, a sooner period of time. And that, that helps us feel good to say, look, I took a little step. Sometimes when we just think of life in big leaps, it seems very overwhelming. So I write books, for example. And if you sit down and think in front of your computer and think, okay, page one, you know, I have a 300-page book to write, then you, you can't do it. So you think, what are my chapters? What's going in every chapter? Which, you know, what's the schedule for writing my chapters? How much am I, how many pages am I going to write? Once you map all that out, writing a book is actually not that difficult. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, the, the uh, other subjects in your book was love. So you are a clinical psychologist. And I was going to ask you what traits we should look for in a partner, but that question could really go on for infinity. So I think a much more, say, impactful question would be, what absolute red flags in your experience should we avoid? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, um, I mean, I'm, I would say don't quote me on this, but I'm saying it on a podcast. So I'm just, you know, spitballing here with you because you know, different strokes for different folks, right? Mm, but, yeah. um, you know, I think people who are looking for other people to make them happy um, or, you know, like we talked about, other people to take responsibility for their lives, unless you're a person who wants that to be their project, you know, that I want to basically schedule my partner's life and make that person happy and that makes me happy in general I think especially in the 21st century it does not tend to be a good match with people that you know a lot of people don't want to feel responsible for someone else's motivation or initiative so if you're a person who's read the defining decade and you feel like I want to go out there and I want to take responsibility for my life and my happiness and my relationships don't try to partner with somebody who doesn't have the same point of view or you'll end up doing all the work and you'll be very unhappy um, you know, something that young people struggle with, which sometimes is temporary, but you got to watch out. It doesn't become permanent is if you want to know the number one, uh, marriage partnership ruiner, statistically speaking, it's substance abuse. So I would be very careful to partner with somebody who doesn't, isn't using substances and by that I you know mean alcohol intentionally or doesn't feel like they have a handle on how that fits into their life um beyond that I don't have a list of of rights and wrongs um as much as it's you know is that partner sort of a match for you in terms of what what are you looking for out of life in five or ten years and what are they looking for and I think the hard part when we're younger it's like well I'm not supposed to have that conversation you know we're supposed to just be in the moment and have fun and be spontaneous but at some point you know hopefully before you move in together before you move cross-country together before you you know really partner up that you have that conversation of do we imagine both people will be working? Do we do we both want kids? Do we want a dog? I mean, that you have these conversations. Yeah, and the the other problem is is that if you're only living in the now and afraid to have those conversations, you could waste years to only find out that the other person doesn't want the same things. <laughs> oh well, that happens all the time, yeah. and that's that's sort of the um, to me that's the the real. I mean, I, I think most. Um, you know, kind of smart, forward-thinking, 20-somethings, we'll figure out the work stuff because you kind of have to, right? You've got mm. to pay your rent, so you might as well do something you don't hate while you're paying your rent. Yeah. Then you decide, well, look, this stuff I actually like. And the tricky part about relationships is that people have a really hard time being that intentional, and they feel like it shouldn't be like that or they're embarrassed to be that person who wants to have that conversation. But like you said, you know, 
about taking responsibility. I think deep down, people do want to have those conversations. Or if you do and your partner doesn't, then that's a red flag for you. That maybe you need to find somebody who wants to have the same conversations as you and is headed in the same direction. Um, there's there's one question that uh, our audience love, and we would get hounded about it if we didn't ask you, as you are um, a great author yourself. And that is, are there any books that you have read that have greatly impacted your life so far? Uh, um, yes, and every time people ask me this, I, I have such a hard time answering it. I need to like, I need to write it down. Um, shoot, I just. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm like drawing a blank every time people ask me this. I can't think of it. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry I'm drawing a blank on it, but I do have them. I'll send them to you in an email later, and you can put a PS on the podcast and say what they were. <laughs> That's not a problem. Uh, well, one of the last questions which we're going to ask you is, we ask all of our guests this. So if you could distill all the lessons you've learned in your life, or maybe a message which you would like to convey to the world, into one, say, short, but really impactful message. What would that? What would that be? I, I mean, I think that the message of the defining decade is, you know, this is this is you know probably the only life you'll ever have, and to go ahead and start living it today. What are you waiting for? Meg, where can our listeners connect with you and your work? So that's easy, M-E-G-J-A-Y.com. And on there, uh, which we've been talking about, I also wrote a book about called Supernormal. The subtitle is The Secret World of the Family Hero. It's about people who kind of grew up with hard times and managed to sort of soar above that, often in their 20s and 30s, to build better lives as adults than they had as kids. Um, and I'm working on another book, but it's not fully out there yet so you'll just have to stay tuned for that yeah i was just going to ask i was going to be one of my last questions i know we're short for time but could you give us sort of a a little preview for the next book (laughs) um it's it is super normal is the last book i wrote and it's for people not just in their 20s or you know early 30s this Mm. book is kind of back squarely with that age group and it's more interested or more focused on mental health so the defining decade was really about you know developmental questions like work and love and friendship and um this book is going to be specifically focused on young adult mental health that's beautiful meg we've had a lot of guests that we've you know been extremely excited to speak to but None more so than you, I think, so far. So thank you so much for coming on. It, it really has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, I appreciate it. I had a great time. So thank you for having me.